0: Well, let us continue in worship this morning by opening God's word to the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, this morning we're looking at verses 5 through 12. And I've said this many times before, but I think it's worth repeating. Uh, This is, it never fails to be the highlight of my week. To be with you, to hear you sing, uh, it is an amazing thing. What the Lord does in our hearts, he encourages us. Just hearing you sing is an amazing demonstration of the power of the Spirit and the glory and the truth of the gospel. So, in connection to that, let me just say how grateful I am personally for those of you who make it a priority to be here on Sundays. Because I need you. I need the encouragement that comes from you, from your singing from you being here, from your presence, as we exalt the name of Jesus together. So Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 12. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. May the Lord bless the reading of his powerful word. The Apostle Peter, the one here doing apologetics, is also the one who wrote what has come to be regarded as the quintessential apologetic text namely 1 Peter 3:15 in that verse Peter instructed us but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect if 1 Peter 3.15 is the teaching on apologetics. Acts 4 is the application of apologetics. For it provides a beautiful example of Peter himself putting his own words into action. In fact, the book of Acts will provide numerous examples of apologetics, apply the defense of the faith, the defense of the gospel. Here's the first one. So if you want to know what it means to defend the faith, let us listen to Peter. Here's the first point. Here's where all starts. The central concern of Christian apologetics. The central concern of Christian apologetics. By what power? By what name? On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? The people in charge, those in positions of authority during the day of the apostles, namely the high priestly family, they had a very specific interest in the events that had unfolded in the premises of the Jerusalem temple. Obviously, the question about power was in reference to the healing of the crippled man in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now, their curiosity... Was not just about the healing itself, but mostly about the power behind it. Why? Because power is what they wanted. Power is what they wanted. After all, they were rulers, they were rulers of the people. And with power comes what? Authority. And so they saw this miracle and the preaching of the apostles as a threat to their authority. These events, the healing, did not sit well with them, and you see their concern precisely in their violent and swift reaction. By holding the apostles in custody all night, they wanted to contain this threat. If this power by which that man was healed, if that power spreads among our people, then our authority is at risk, or so they thought. More of a search for truth, arresting the apostles was a power play. Plus, did you notice what is woefully missing in the attitude of the rulers? They showed absolutely no concern whatsoever for the men who had been healed. This reveals that their interest was ultimately self-interest, power, Was their concern. Now, this is of course not the first time that they had asked questions like that one. During the ministry of Jesus, these same rulers came to him and asked basically the same question. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, we read that as Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the rulers came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? We see the exact same pattern here in Acts chapter 4 verse 7 but notice the slight the slight difference they added by what name did you do this in other words who is the one standing behind this miracle we know it's not you Peter there's someone behind you who is the one standing behind you Peter give us a name on whose authority are you operating this question is massively eye-opening. It is, in fact, a question that goes to the very heart of the apologetic task of the church. It is the central concern of apologetics. Let me put it this way. Apologetics, the need to defend the faith, exists because in the world there is a battle for power and authority. Knowingly or unknowingly, By asking this question, these rulers put their finger on the very heart of the matter. In a very real sense, these rulers are a small illustration of the battle between good and evil, truth and falsehood, God and idols. Listen, apologetics exist. This is very important. Apologetics, the the need to defend the faith, exist because sin leads men to question the ultimate authority of God and seek to replace him with a different one. Apologetics is essentially concerned with the issue of authority. Here's then the central inquiry of apologetics. Who has the authority to define everything in life? Who is the name who has all authority? Sound familiar? Who is the name who has all authority to determine the meaning and the purpose of all things? Where or who is the final court of appeal? And I'm not talking about the Supreme Court. But let us be a a bit more practical. Who has the authority to tell us, for example, why evil exists in the world? Moreover... Once we ask that question about evil, we need to ask, whose standard do we use to define what evil actually is? Who do we ask? Is evil defined by a common consensus among sinners? A type of social construct? Do we get to decide what evil is, or has that been decided for us already? And where do we find that definition of evil? A lot of people are asking, well, what do you say about evil? Well, define it first. What is evil? So when the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs 3:7, "Fear the Lord and turn away from evil," who defines evil? Don't we need an objective standard of goodness in order to define evil in the first place? Who has the authority to define what human sexuality is, how many genders there are, and the purpose of these genders. Here's a big one. Who defines what racism actually is? I don't know about you, but it seems like racism can be defined in many different ways in our day. Racism can even be just the color of your skin, according to some. Well then, who has the authority to define all these things? Is there a name associated with final ultimate authority? What about human logic and thinking? Who has the authority to tell us how to think about everything? What is truth and where do we find it? You see, apologetics is addressing the issue of ultimacy. Now, I want to illustrate this by taking you back to where everything started the Garden of Eden. In the garden, What was at stake was the question of ultimate authority. It went something like this. God said, here's where happiness is. Trust and obey my word. Eve said, I will define my own happiness. I will trust and obey someone else's word. God said, that is not good, Eve. Eve said, I will decide what good is. Ever since, the task of apologetics has been this. To call humanity back to thinking and living under God's authority. Because, my friends, the world, societies, families, and individuals will live either under autonomy self-rule or theonomy god's rule eve chose self-rule eve chose autonomy and now we are in a big mess so here's peter telling these religious authorities who the ultimate authority is. When questioned about the miracle and the source of power, Peter is quick to tell them. There was no hesitation in his answer. But before we we're given the answer, Luke, the writer of this account, inserted something that I believe is often overlooked in our conversations regarding Christian apologetics. And what is that? It is our next point. The critical prerequisite of Christian apologetics. The critical prerequisite of Christian apologetics. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. That short but all-important statement is utterly critical for the practice of apologetics, for it reveals at least four truths of Christian apologetics. First, that statement reveals that the starting point in our engagement with the world is our relationship with the Lord. Now, there's much we could say about being filled with the Spirit, but I will limit myself to this. Peter clearly was empowered by the Spirit of God in that moment to speak with boldness and accuracy. So he was filled with the Spirit as seen in the fact that the Spirit gave Peter clarity and guided his thinking To reflect the truth of Jesus. What is interesting is that later on, when Paul instructed us to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.8, he said it this way, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is what? Debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Given the fact that Paul sets a contrast between being filled with the Spirit and debauchery, and debauchery affects your thinking. We can understand that being filled with the Spirit is about thinking clearly in light of biblical truth. In other words, as you fill your mind and heart with truth, the Spirit then empowers you to apply it. To be filled with the Spirit is to have a mind whose Thoughts are dominated by and captive to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Thus, spirit-empowered biblical thinking is the number one weapon in our apologetic endeavors. Second, the second truth we learn from this short statement is that apologetics is not mainly an intellectual war, but a spiritual one. Did you hear that? Apologetics is not primarily an intellectual war, but a spiritual one. It is very sad indeed that apologetics, the defense of the faith, has come to be thought of as something only a few in the intellectual elites can do. And you have to be trained in all the sorts of philosophy and science and all these things. Nothing could be further from the truth. Apologetics is a spiritual endeavor in which all Christians must engage. Third, the third truth revealed by that statement Is this apart from the Spirit's work? There can be no effective apologetics. Listen to this no one has ever been saved because of a good apologetic argument concocted by the human intellect. Salvation can only come as the Spirit gives sight to those who are blinded and brings light to those in darkness. So, if our intentions, if our intentions, are to use apologetics for the glory of God and the good of man, then the Spirit has to go with us as we engage with the world. And now we come to the fourth truth revealed in this statement. Faithful apologetics calls for humble dependence on God. Notice what Luke did not say. He did not say, and Peter, full of himself, said to them, Apologetics goes back to the Proverbs 3, 7 principle. Be not wise in whose eyes? Say, my own. Come on, own it. Because it's easy to say, be not wise in your own eyes. I'm doing all right. No, say mine own eyes, right? Be not wise in my own eyes. Fear the Lord. In a practical sense, then, we are being told here That we cannot neglect our communion with the Holy Spirit in our efforts to go and tell others about their broken communion with God. If you claim to be a Christian but you walk in a broken communion with God, you can't go tell others about their broken communion with God. We must be vigilant with our own heart if we will be effective in telling others that they need a new heart, which only Christ can give. Apologetics is something that begins in our personal walk with the Lord. And here's another massive implication we cannot miss. As we engage the world with the gospel, we don't want to lose our souls in the process. We must be careful that as we go into the world, we don't become like it. We must be filled with the Spirit. But there is a further aspect which is equally important which also flows out of this, which is our next point, the right arm of Christian apologetics. The right arm of Christian apologetics. We're entering to verse 9. Peter and John did not get in trouble with the temple authorities for doing something evil, but for doing something good. Peter said, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, I love how Peter points out the obvious irony in all of this. In case they forgot, Peter reminds them that this trial, they were on trial for a good deed, which is very telling, is it not? Please carefully consider this insight. And I'm going to say it fast so you won't be able to write it. But you need to remember it. An unbiblical view of the world will so desperately seek to justify itself without appealing to God's final authority that, when pressed by the truth, will quickly begin to call evil good and good evil. Unbiblical thinking will even twist the very definition of good and evil in order to present itself acceptable. To make this relevant, let me state clearly That only in a world dominated by autonomous, non-biblical thinking, untethered from the all-encompassing authority of God's written revelation, can repentance from sexual sin be considered evil and worthy of punishment. In other words, only in a world where evil is good and good evil can sexual deviancy be protected by law. Only in a world plagued with unbiblical thinking can the act of letting an unborn baby live be considered an attack on women's rights. And this, by the way, is what happens when men start doing some thinking on their own. By thinking on their own, I mean thinking that is not in submission to God's ultimate authority. This is what happens when men do the opposite of Proverbs 3, 5, and don't trust in the Lord, but lean in their own understanding. It inevitably leads to self-destruction. But Christians are called to do good, as defined by God's Word. Good deeds are the right arm of Christian apologetics because good deeds are the burning coals on people's heads as Paul said in Romans 12, 20. What is that? Well, it is somewhat complex to determine that with accuracy, but the term, which is borrowed from Proverbs 25, 21, most likely means that our good deeds, when done for the sake of the gospel and within the call to repentance, should have a shaming effect on unbelievers, which could possibly lead to their repentance. In Acts 4, we see... That it did not have that effect, at least not in that moment. But Peter did remind them that a good man had been healed. It is as though Peter were saying to them, do you guys see the twisted nature of what you're doing? That's what he's telling them. We are being questioned because a crippled man was healed. You should be ashamed of yourselves. So when in Canada, they say you cannot preach conversion to people in sexual sin, they should be ashamed of themselves. Because it is good to call people out of darkness. It is good to share the gospel. But when they throw someone in jail for preaching the truth, something good, they should be ashamed. They should be ashamed. And speaking of ashamed... Here's the next characteristic of apologetics. The public nature of Christian apologetics. The public nature. Peter said, let it be known to how many people? To all. To all. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a private endeavor, but public. This is why I'm preaching publicly. And it's on the internet. It's amazing that I haven't gotten in trouble yet. Everyone needs to know. Everyone needs to know. Please note that Peter did not even exclude anyone preaching the gospel. In fact, he even includes the rulers and the elders, people, all those people back in verse 8. Why does he include them? Because Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is Lord of all. No one is excluded. No one in this room is excluded. Even if you're an unbeliever, even if you call yourself an atheist, you're not excluded. You have a Lord. It's called, his name is Jesus. This is precisely my beef with the popular song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I agree with the second part. By all means, let it shine. Let the gospel out, but there is nothing little about it. After all, Jesus is the light of the... Oh, that's not a little light. That's pretty massive. Why does this matter? Well since jesus is the light of the world and we the church are in union with christ what are we well you don't have to answer that jesus answered that for us you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house undoubtedly as Peter was being questioned, he would have remembered what Jesus taught them. And so he says, let it be known to all, to the rulers and to the, all the house of Israel, that Jesus is Lord. This is an important point to be made, brothers and sisters. I believe the church is suffering from a type of retreat syndrome in which we are forgetting that our gospel is worldwide and meant to penetrate every corner of the world and every corner of society. Carl F.H. Henry once said this, and I quote, Whereas once the redemptive gospel was a world-changing message, now it has been narrowed to a world-resisting message. And then he talks about fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, in revolting against the social gospel, and rightfully so, seemed also to have revolted against the Christian social imperative. End quote. In other words... Christians need to live their faith in Jesus publicly, in the world, not just within their homes or the walls of the church building. A good example of this is how Christians lived in the Roman Empire during the 4th century. The emperor of Rome, Diocletian, who was also considered to be a type of high priest, who guarded the purity of the Roman culture, saw the need to rid the Roman culture of the most immediate threat. You know what that was? Christians. Now, why Christians? Why Christians? Because unlike the Jews who kept to themselves and did not get involved in society, Christians were everywhere. They were annoying. They were annoying. They were everywhere. Peter Latehart explains, and I quote, Christians mixed with other Romans in the markets and even at the court and in the army, Jews could be kept in place, but it would take some fine-grained surgery to remove the cancer of Christianity, end quote. Christians were not recluse people. Leithart again says, quote, if Christians... This is an incredible, incredible insight. Listen to this, and then you can go home. Listen to this. If Christians, and I quote, if Christians had been isolated, they would have been left alone. End quote. Could it be, brothers and sisters, that one of the great sins of the Christian church living in the 21st century is simply that we want to be left alone. Let the lives of the 4th century Christians stand as a wonderful historical illustration of what Peter says with his lips. Let all the house of Israel know we are the light of the world. But here's another insight we can glean from these 1st 4th century Christians. They were unwilling to compromise their faith. How do I know that? I know that because Rome didn't care about your faith as long as you were willing to accept all the other faiths. Yet, they were persecuted. So I need to make this statement. Don't forget this statement that I'm about to make. Are you listening? Don't forget this statement. Only an uncompromising faith will evoke the hatred of the world. Only an uncompromising faith will evoke the hatred of the world. If you want the world to love you, then accept everything. And this leads us to the final main point, which is the exclusive objective of Christian apologetics. What is the exclusive objective of Christian apologetics? It has a name, Jesus of Nazareth. Let's read verses 10 through 12. Let it be known to all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If being filled with the Spirit is the critical prerequisite, of Christian apologetics, then Jesus Christ must be the exclusive objective of Christian apologetics. Apologetics that don't eventually lead to Jesus of Nazareth as the exclusive Lord and Savior cannot be said to be Spirit-led. I can make such a categorical statement because the very ministry of the Spirit is to point people to Jesus. Now as you can see, I use the word exclusive, and intentionally so, because Christianity is exclusive, not inclusive. Consider this question with me. Is Christ the only way to God? Here's the definitive answer from Peter himself. Yes, Jesus is the only way to God. There are no other saviors. Peter will now give us five reasons why this is indeed the case. Why Jesus must be the only way to God. First, his identity. His identity. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In 1980, a man by the name of Hans Kung, I think I butchered that last name, but anyway, asked this question, and I quote, Might it not perhaps be far better not to give God a name at all? End quote. This is a typical sentiment in the ecumenical movement, which seeks cooperation among religions always at the expense of truth. But that is not possible. Moreover, the idea of a nameless God was unthinkable to Peter. Without hesitation, Peter said, The power, the name behind this healing is Jesus. And not just any Jesus, but in case you're getting confused, I'll even give you the town in which he lived. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. At this point, we might be tempted to overlook Peter's specificity in saying Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Or we might be tempted to think that Peter is overstating his case, exaggerating his point. However, specificity matters, especially when it comes to the identity of our Savior. So here is a simple point of application. Our apologetics needs to be specific. Peter was specific in his description of Jesus, and so should we. By doing this, we can eliminate many other false Christs that have gone out into the world. For example... The Jesus of Mormonism is not the Jesus of Nazareth. The Jesus of Jehovah's Witness is not the Jesus of Nazareth. The Jesus of Islam is not the Jesus of Nazareth. The Jesus of liberalism is not the Jesus of Nazareth. And the Jesus of tolerance, who accepts and welcomes all lifestyles and all sins, such as homosexuality, theft, dishonesty, murder, plagiarism, immorality, without ever calling anyone to repent, is not the Jesus of Nazareth. There's only one Jesus of Nazareth, and he's the eternal son of God, incarnate, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, son of Mary and Joseph, the seed of Abraham, the descendant of David, and he's holy, holy, holy. We need to be specific. Second, consider his work, his work. This is why he's the only savior. He died and rose. Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, the contrast is astonishing jesus was crucified by men jesus was raised by god rejected by man vindicated by god he died because of people's sin he rose because of his own righteousness this is the work of jesus and the reason why he is the only savior of sinners But there's an interesting detail in peter's approach in defending and proclaiming the gospel he makes it personal In other words, Peter doesn't just tell them about the death of Jesus in an abstract or impersonal terms. He incriminates them. He incriminates them in the death of Jesus. Why is that important? It is important because it teaches us that when we proclaim and defend the gospel before the world, we must personalize it. The relevancy of our message lies in the fact that the death and resurrection of Jesus have absolutely everything to do with those who listen Our apologetics needs to be personal, not only specific, but personal. We defend the gospel before people, and we must personalize the gospel by speaking about sin. Peter said, Jesus, whom you crucified, contrary to popular opinion, speaking of sin and calling people to repent is what love does, because the standard of love is God, not you. Romans 4.25, Paul said, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We personalize apologetics by confronting sin. Third, Jesus is the only Savior because of his centrality. His centrality. He is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. In a massive irony, what the religious leaders of Israel were looking for, namely, The establishment of the kingdom of God on earth could only be built upon the shoulders of the one they rejected and crucified. Namely, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is what cornerstone means. In a building, the central stone is called the cornerstone. This stone is central for the building project. Likewise, Jesus is the one upon whom God's kingdom is built. No Jesus, no kingdom. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he has become the heir of all things and worthy of the allegiance of the peoples of the world. The one the leaders rejected has inherited all the nations, as Isaiah chapter nine verse six says, and the government shall be upon his what shoulder. Thus, our apologetic needs to be inviting. What I mean by that is simply that when we defend the gospel of the Lord Jesus in the world, we are not simply giving them a message they need to listen to. More than that, we are extending an invitation to belong to this building project whose builder is Christ himself. When we defend our faith, We do so by extending an invitation to come and be saved by Jesus to become a living stone in the building of God whose foundation is the Lord himself. So when we proclaim and defend the gospel, we are invited people, inviting them to become kingdom members, kingdom families who live for the glory of the Lord. I was glad, I was glad to hear someone say very recently in reference to our church, and I hope you are encouraged by this, how encouraging it. How encouraging it is to see families and individuals truly seeking to live their lives for God. I don't say this to our credit. Not at all, but to God's glory. This can only be said of a community in which Christ is the builder, the cornerstone. And this is the kingdom of God. It is individuals families, churches, and even societies seeking to live under the lordship of King Jesus, our apologetics needs to be inviting. Consider next, his singularity, his singularity, for there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. Please note with me, and some of you are not going to like this, or, or maybe you will. Please note with me that this is one of the most exclusive, dogmatic, intolerant, and categorical statements in all of the Bible. In all of the Bible. There is salvation in no one else. The strong implication is that all other opinions, all other options for salvation are rendered useless, false, and impotent. Now, what is this salvation which only Jesus can provide? The salvation is to be brought back to God through reconciliation. Paul said that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 2 Corinthians 5.19 Please don't miss the fact That reconciliation presupposes what? Enmity. Only enemies need to be reconciled. As God's enemies, we deserve God's righteous wrath for our sin. But Jesus the Lord stepped in between God and us. And just like the waters of the flood were endured by the ark so that Noah could be saved. So too, the wrath of God was endured by Jesus, our ark, on the cross and by his death so we don't have to endure it. Therefore, in an irony, our apologetic needs to be unapologetic. There cannot be another Savior for no other man has endured God's righteous wrath for the sins of man if you want to be reconciled to god there is only one way jesus christ because he died under the wrath of god in him you must believe by the way this gospel would have been highly political highly political the romans did not care what you believed as long as it didn't interfere with emperor worship Thus, Peter's message would have been perceived as a threat to the emperor himself. Emperor, Diocletian, Caesar Augustus, you name it, you are not king. You serve one. Why? Well, this leads us to our last point. Consider his supremacy. His supremacy. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which We must be saved. Notice that Jesus is the name given among who? Not angels. Men. He is Lord, the only God-man who rules the world and all things in it, including emperors. Now, let me make a connection that I believe is very important at this point, and we will be done. Please return in your Bibles, to 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. I want to show you a very critical element as we consider the, the issue in the matter of apologetics from a Christian perspective. First Peter 3.15. I mentioned this is the quintessential apologetic text, and for good reason. Peter said this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense. The word defense is apologia, apologetics. To anyone who asks for a reason, the word reason is the Greek word logos. For the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here's my final point. Our apologetic needs to be comprehensive. Why? Because we are proclaiming and defending the one in whom all things hold together. Colossians 1.17 Jesus is supreme above all things. There is no other name like His. No other person like Him. No other love like His. No other power like His. No other authority like His. He is Utterly and infinitely unique. He stands alone as the only Savior, ruler of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of the world. Therefore, what is the reason? What is the logic of our hope in Jesus? Here is the logic. That without Jesus, there is no logic at all. You can take that statement and think about it for the rest of your life. Why is our hope in Jesus? Because without him, nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense without Christ. That's what it means that he holds all things together, including our worldview. The way we think of the world, it only makes sense because of him, because of Jesus. So I want to bring this to a close by quoting apologist Greg Bunsen, who beautifully summarized all of this and i give you this quote and i quote there is no religion for me apart from the historical work of the son of god applied to me in the power of the holy spirit the story of Christ's incarnation life miracles teaching self-sacrificial death Powerful resurrection and glorious ascension is to me the story of stories. The historical truth which provides the paradigm, the framework for interpreting and understanding everything about myself. Life has been for me on a day-to-day basis a matter of seeing ever more fully, more deeply, and more clearly how that saving story provides the integration and meaning of everything that has happened to me, of everything I am or hope to be, end quote. My prayer is that this will be true of us as well. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. For we know that apart from him, nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense. Help us to live our lives in this ongoing, never-ending quest of finding out what that means for everyday life. That apart from Jesus, we have nothing that he is truly the hope of the world, the only Savior. And so help us, Lord, to be bold, unapologetic about our apologetics and to speak with love, with gentleness and mercy to call sinners to this wonderful Savior, your Son, the King of glory, the one who lived a perfect life, died on a cross for our sins and rose again for our justification. May his name be glorified both now and forever. Amen.